This is Jorge Facinetti, and you are listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary War News. Hello, everyone. Dr. Blevins and I are very pleased to welcome to our microphones Mike Evans from Corsep Therapeutics. Today, we're going to take advantage, so to speak, of Mike's and Dr. Blevins' knowledge and work on hypercortisolism and talk about the timeline and evolution of our understanding of the disease. How emerging knowledge is influencing the practice of those on the front lines doing the work and caring for patients every day. We'll start our podcast with Dr. Blevins and a quick summary of our discussion. So it's interesting uh, to learn about a disease state, Uh, whether you're in medical school or you're a patient with a recent diagnosis or whether you work for a pharmaceutical company and you come on board to to work on a particular therapeutic area, you have to start somewhere. And usually there's an existing body of knowledge that uh, we have to, to sort of delve into to understand a disease, its diagnosis and its treatment. And that's true for every disease state. Uh, Sometimes once the disease is recognized, and most of the time that's many years ago, but with other diseases like coronavirus or HIV, for example, and some of the genetic understanding we have of old diseases, uh, there's a relatively uh, later start point than we have for other disorders. And the evolution of all of these diseases, whether they're new or old, Uh, occurs at a different rate, largely based on our understanding of those disease processes as a result of advances in molecular biology and other research uh, arenas. Uh, For example, coronavirus, we've known about these viruses for many, many years, uh, but this new virus that's led to this recent pandemic, we've learned a tremendous amount about how to combat this thing and treat it because of the, where we are in our molecular understanding of virology. Uh, HIV was the same. Uh, there was a, a first couple cases reported in the 1980s and there was a period of time about seven years or so before the development of antiretroviral therapies. Uh, and then there was an explosion of our understanding of the virus and the way to treat it. Uh, Cushing's disease is an old disease, and we're going to hear more about that. Uh, probably for the, for the first 70 years, we had a basic understanding, and then we started to have some advances in diagnosis and treatment. Uh, and then in the 80s and 90s, we learned more about treatment. And in the past decade, I would say we've probably learned more about this disorder than we knew in the prior 100 years. Uh, and I'm reminded that... Uh, of a couple of different tenets in medicine and, and in life in general, that if you don't, uh, history repeats itself. And if you don't understand history, you're certainly doomed to repeat it and to make mistakes. Uh, and that uh, everything uh, old is new again. And then another one that uh, the more you know about something, the less you actually know. And all of those things are true about Cushing's syndrome. Uh, I heard a wonderful presentation uh, by Mike uh, Evans of Corset Therapeutics a couple of months ago uh, pertaining to the timeline and and the evolution of our understanding of hypercortisolism. Mike is a tremendous educator and uh, wanted to include him in our series of podcasts at Pituitary World News 
because I think it can enlighten those uh, of us who take care of patients who have Cushing's and those who have Cushing's as well, and anybody else who wants to understand how advances in diagnostic tests and understanding of a disease can result in uh, um, an old disease looking like a new disease, basically. Uh, and uh, so I'm happy to welcome Mike. Uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for a living, and then we'll get started with this timeline. Yeah, we're Thank delighted you. that you're here, Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. Thank you, Dr. Blevins and JD. Uh, I, I appreciate that very generous introduction. Um, so uh, my name is Michael Evans. I am the Director of Commercial Insights, Learning and Development at Corset Therapeutics. And essentially what my group does, we, we have two main responsibilities. One is to uh, make sure that our um, client-facing staff personnel, our, our clinical sales specialists in particular, are well-educated on the disease of hypercortisolism and, and the, the product that we market to clinicians. Uh, the other side of what we do is, is to work with uh, physicians, clinicians, uh, and, and try to really understand how emerging data is actually influencing practice. So that's the commercial insight side of what we do, if, if you will. So it's one thing to understand the data, and, and, uh, but it's not our perspective of the data as an organization that matters. It's, it's how is that data influencing uh, what those on the front lines are, are doing and, and how is it influ influencing patient care? So uh, we bring clinicians together uh, to understand how, how they're thinking about this disease and, and how the disease is, is evolving. And, and that's where a lot of the information we'll be discussing today came from is, is the opportunities that I've had to uh, not just dig into all the literature around hypercortisolism and, and how it's evolved, but, but also to then discuss that literature with the very folks that are out there treating patients every day. Um, so it's, it's an honor, really truly is an honor and a pleasure to be here. And, and I look forward to this discussion. Great. We really appreciate you being here today. So let's start with uh, Harvey Cushing. He's the uh, namesake of the disease process. And I, I think that if he were alive today, he probably would very much dislike the fact that this disorder is named after him. Uh, he of course was honored in that way, but I can't imagine any physician thinking it's an honor to have a disorder named after them. So tell us about uh, how all that got started. Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're going way back to 1910, uh, uh, around when he first described his patient, Minnie G, is what she became to be, came to be known on as thereafter. And, and this was the kind of first documented Cushing syndrome patient. And I think what's really relevant to this timeline and to this you know, overarching concept of how the disease has evolved is what exactly Dr. Cushing was observing. Um, you know, in 1910, we didn't have the sophisticated lab testing that we have now. We didn't even really have a, a firm understanding of, of cortisol as a hormone. So what he was really describing was this very specific and very rare combination of physical changes that were manifesting in this patient. Um, you know, obvious, the obvious muscle wasting in the extremities, the skinny arms and legs, the very obvious central uh, obesity. And, and, and remember in 1910, we didn't have an obesity epidemic. So, so just being overweight in general was a little bit more of, uh, of something that stood out, Never mind this, this very obvious central adiposity, the round face, the fat accumulations uh, on the collarbones and the top of the back. Um, uh, the facial plethora, the, the wide purple stretch marks, uh, the, the valacious stria, uh, you know, these weren't, again, this wasn't interpreting, in, interpreting complex 
biochemical testing, this was, these were physical features that he was able to, to look at in this patient and describe. And this combination of physical changes really came to define Cushing syndrome. And as the understanding of the biochemical processes leading to these physical changes begin to develop. Um, you know, if you're, if you, what we know now is if you screen patients that have this very specific combination of features, you get a somewhat of a, of a specific kind of biochemical, um, you know, underlying cortisol process, these, these very high levels of cortisol that ramp up in a relatively short period of time that, that start to cause these physical changes. Uh, and this is a very rare condition, depending on the reference you're citing, you know, 5, 10, 15 people per million, and with relatively consistent breakdown of source, 70% of the time coming from a pituitary source, around 10% of the time coming from an ectopic source, and around 20% of the time coming from an, an adrenal source. Um, and for many, many decades, as uh, Dr. Blevin said earlier, that understanding of the disease is what drove screening. It, it's what drove the interpretation of testing. It's, it's what's driven the diagnosis. And um, you know, it wasn't until many decades later that, that some, some things began to occur, which we'll talk about in a second, that, that started to shift the focus of, of who might warrant screening and evaluation. Um, but I'll stop there. And, you know, as someone who is, is you know, treating patients that oftentimes have these features, um, I'd love to hear, you know, what additional context you have uh, around how this kind of early days of this disease really informed uh, how we, we still kind of view the disease today, Dr. Blevins. Well, Harvey Cushing had other patients who were similar, and he was, I think, the first to associate the fact that uh, patients with this uh, physiognomy or body type uh, actually had pituitary tumors. Not all patients did, but most did. Uh, so I think that that's why we often refer to patients who have a pituitary tumor and hypercortisolism as having Cushing's disease. The syndrome is anybody who has the body type uh, that he described. We have come to call this classic Cushingoid features or classic forms of the disease just to summarize that the patient sort of fit all of those criteria. But as we're going to discuss uh, over, the, over the next uh, probably 80 years, we recognize that not everyone has those classic features and we'll get into some of those other things a little bit later in this discussion. Um, with the discovery of cortisol, I think it was in the 1940s, but I may be off by a decade or so there, we started to understand since we then started learning to measure it in the 50s, 60s, 70s, we understood that this is indeed hypercortisolism leading to these physical features. But uh, as most diseases, we sort of recognize the um, disorder by how the patient looks uh, and uh, the subtle features weren't recognized early on. And there were probably people having more subtle forms of this disorder all along in the history of time. It's not like this is new, uh, this is a, a product of, uh, or consequence of being a human being to develop some of these disorders. And I think that by and large, a majority of people who had the disorder in his era and for the ensuing 70 years probably were underdiagnosed or missed altogether uh, and suffered uh, due to the consequences of the disease process. Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, you know, on, on that note, you figure, 
a couple of things that, that seemed to be understood or, or thought to be understood early on, it was that one, this, this was rare. And two, like you said, that it presented in a certain way with a certain look. So if, if you know, to, to be fair, if I'm, a, if I'm a busy clinician and I'm treating all these other conditions that are, are more prevalent in my practice, and I'm told that this is a rare condition that looks a very specific way, it makes sense that I'm not going to go looking for it in patients who don't look that way, because I have other things that I, that I need to be spending my time on when, when treating these, these patients. So, um, you know, I, I think it makes sense that uh, a, a very narrow group of patients were ever really evaluated with consistency for this condition, because, you know, again, that's what was known at the time. Uh, I think in, in looking back, what really started to change things and, and make it uh, more um, necessary to look for, for some of these more subtle presentations was uh, abdominal imaging becoming more uh, prevalent and something that was, was occurring with, with much higher frequency, let's say around the 80s, um, because now you have patients that are going in for abdominal CT scans for one reason or another, a car accident, abdominal pain, uh, whatever, it might, kidney stones, et cetera. And a relatively high proportion of these patients are having these totally incidental tumors or adenomas discovered on their adrenal glands. And very few, if any of these patients have the physical features described by Harvey Cushing, you know, it, if they had those features, they probably would have been screened for, for Cushing syndrome. Um, yet they have this structural defect, structural anomaly on an endocrine gland. So now all of a sudden there's a reason to look and see is, is that adenoma, is that tumor secreting a hormone? And uh, upon, you know, evaluating these patients, it, it is found that, you know, anywhere we know now from five to 30%, depending on the testing and the cutoffs used and, and the, mm -hmm. the, the specific study being done, may have evidence of some autonomous cortisol secretion. But, but this created a bit of a conundrum because again, these, these patients don't look like the patient described by Harvey Cushing. They don't have those classic, you know, phenotypic features and they don't have the same level of cortisol excess that, you know, clinicians were used to seeing when screening those other patients. Um, you know, oftentimes tests like their, you know, the 24 hour urine free cortisols are, are in the normal range. Um, you know, the late night salivary cortisols may be discordant. Some are normal, some are abnormal. One milligram dexamethasone suppression test is abnormal, uh, you know, but, but mildly abnormal. So, you know, it's the question is, is, is this the same thing? Is this patient really at risk? And, and initially there's, there's no data looking at that specific patient group so that there's no way to necessarily know, but this is kind of when the things start to change and it's like, it's recognized, oh, maybe some patients don't look like that, you know, classic description, but still may have a cortisol issue. And, you know, it seems like that was a pretty big uh, kind of milestone in, in, in how the, the field has evolved. And, and as we start to look at that other patient group, new data emerges and it kind of enlightens us as to who else might be at risk. So what does that do in terms of the time it takes to diagnose somebody with Cushing's on average? How, how many years? I think that's somebody... an interesting question. I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Dr. Blevins thinks about that. Um, well, a couple of interesting comments. First is that uh, I'm not sure that we have yet impacted the time to diagnosis. It's usually said two to five years. I've seen patients take 15 years before or have symptoms for 15 years and take that long to get a diagnosis. 
I'm hoping that our current understanding will result in not only more people diagnosed, but people diagnosed in an earlier stage, but that's gonna require the, uh, the concerted efforts of lots of people to try to get uh, um, the education forward to have the awareness of what might represent Cushing's. And we'll talk more about that later, uh, but have that awareness brought to the attention of the physician to do appropriate diagnostic testing. In many ways, I think that the evolution of diagnostic testing will help with that process. Early on, it probably hindered the process. Um, in the 1980s and early part of the 1990s, there were a large number of studies that were produced that uh, resulted in a set of recommendations on uh, the diagnostic tests to use and the particular cutoffs to employ to diagnose Cushing syndrome or Cushing's disease. But those were referenced to this uh, phenotype that we talked about earlier, the classic form of hypercortisolism. And those were the study patients. So you're going to diagnose the severe cases but miss the mild cases. And that's mm -hmm. the problem with those tests. And for example, we used to require dexamethasone suppression test cutoffs of five. Now we know that probably 1.8 is the proper cutoff. We used to be told that you should have a urine cortisol was three times upper limit of normal to diagnose Cushing's syndrome. But we now know that many patients with Cushing's have levels that are in the normal range and, and possibly double for what their normal set point or their normal physiology requires. Uh, we used to be told that ACTH levels are always going to be suppressed with adrenal disease, but we now know that they're not always suppressed. They can be low normal, and that's because we have a better understanding of the mild forms of cortisol secretion or the autonomous hypercortisolism. We used to think you had to have elevated cortisol levels to have pathologic cortisol secretion, but we now know that you can have normal cortisol levels, just an abnormal diurnal variation and what we would call autonomous cortisol secretion uh, as a result of an adrenal tumor or even a pituitary tumor that's secreting ACTH, uh, but in a rhythm that's not diurnal and it's causing elevations of cortisol at a time point during the day when cortisol levels are supposed to be low. Still normal cortisol levels, but just secreted when it's not supposed to be secreted because we usually make higher levels in the morning uh, just before and after we awaken and they're half of that in the afternoon and a 10th of that at bedtime. And some of these people have normal cortisol levels, but they're making cortisol straight throughout the day. And that's leading to significant problems such as insomnia and weight gain, and maybe some uh, mood disorders as well. So I think that the testing in the eighties, while it helped us define those who had severe Cushing's, it, it restrained us and prevented us from identifying those patients that have milder forms. And as Mike had alluded to, it was the, the uh, understanding of, uh, up to 10% of people ranges between four and 10%, probably averages 8%, will have an adrenal adenoma on uh, adrenal uh, CT of the scan of the abdomen with that proportion being higher, the older the patient is. And studies have showed that a number of these people actually have uh, autonomous cortisol secretion. And when we look at the symptoms and signs, we recognize that some people present with only one or a couple of the features uh, that have been attributed to classic Cushingoid syndrome. Uh, so Mike, uh, why don't you take us to the next level and let's talk about some of those things that I just mentioned. Sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's, we start to see some things change around, um, you know, 2008, the most recent um, 
diagnostic guidelines for hypercortisolism Cushing syndrome were published by the Endocrine Society. And, and you, you do see the tone starting to shift. Um, the authors specifically say that not all patients um, who have clinically relevant hypercortisolism will have those classic you know, physical changes described by Harvey Cushing. Uh, they actually say more often uh, patients may have a combination of comorbidities that, that may actually be common in the general population, like diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, menstrual irregularities, et cetera. Um, so so we, we start to see the tone change uh, even, uh, you know, as, as back in 2008 that, um, you know, th those phenotypic features aren't you know, a, a make or break for making the diagnosis. There's actually a line in those, in those guidelines that specifically says uh, there is no one right way to make the diagnosis. It's this combination of interpreting biochemical tests and, and the clinical presentation of the patient and, and really looking at all of that in its entirety to, to make, try kind of triangulate this diagnosis. Um, and then in, in 2009, ACE published their guidelines specifically for the biochemical evaluation of these incidentally discovered adrenal adenomas. So, so that's looking at those nodules in particular, which means you're not just looking at cortisol, but also aldosterone and catecholamines, et cetera. And, and the real um, kind of uh, question that those guidelines are trying to answer is at what point should this patient go for a unilateral adrenalectomy to have that adrenal gland removed or that tumor removed? Um, and when specifically looking at, at cortisol secretion, um, you know, if, if the, if the, end goal is surgery, which is permanent and it's invasive. And recognizing in 2009, there was more understanding that these patients with adrenal adenomas who did not have those classic physical features, um, but did have evidence of hypercortisolism were at risk. There, there was more understanding that that was the case, but there wasn't still a, a truly robust data set to say what that risk was. Um, it makes sense that, that those, those guidelines for incidental loma screening set the bar for hypercortisolism relatively high. Um, so whereas the 2008 Endocrine Society guidelines does recommend a post-dexamethasone suppression test cutoff of 1.8 micrograms per deciliter to, you know, kind of initiate or confirm that clinical suspicion and, and move on for other testing, these ACE guidelines for incidental loma workup, which were more geared towards at what point do you progress to surgery, recommend a cutoff of five micrograms per deciliter. And you know, the authors recognize that at that cutoff, the specificity of the test is 100%, meaning at that cutoff, if you have a patient with an adrenal adenoma and they have a deep post-DST above five, you can be certain that they have hypercortisolism and should go to, to surgery. Uh, but they also recognize that the sensitivity at that cutoff was only 58%. So you're gonna miss patients. You're gonna miss a fair number of patients with that cutoff. And, and they also recognize that 1.8 would be a better cutoff to exclude hypercortisolism. But again, you know, the purpose of those guidelines were to, to help guide clinicians as to when surgery might be appropriate. So, you know, a higher post-dexamethasone -dex suppression test cutoff, you know, looking for things uh, like Dr. Blevins mentioned earlier, as, you know, fully suppressed ACTH uh, as additional uh, supporting evidence. If you're if you're going to go for this permanent invasive option, you you want to be very sure at, at what you're at what you're looking at. So um, I think looking at both of those sets of guidelines in the light of what they're what they're trying to accomplish, those cutoffs, you know, and and those recommendations make sense. Uh, it really isn't until about five years after those guidelines are published that 
more and more data starts to pile up that really um, kind of quantifies just how much risk is associated with being a patient who has an adrenal adenoma, who does not have those physical phenotypic features, but has even you know, mild elevations in cortisol, uh, you know, how much risk is that patient really exposed to? And, and uh, there were three publications in particular that have been cited and referenced and spoken about quite a bit since then. Um, you know, one by Dr. DeBono's group, Dr. Morelli's group, and Dr. DiDalmazzi's group uh, that all had you know, pretty large patient numbers, 198 patients in two of those studies, 211 in the third, um, longer follow-up times, five to seven and a half plus years of follow-up, average follow-up. And, and that that really showed a, a direct link between, you know, even post-dexamethasone suppression test cutoffs as low as 1.8 and significant increases in mortality in new cardiovascular events or both. And, and that's when the discussion really starts to, to shift and, and we start to see, um, you know, guidelines uh, even change uh, and adapt even further. Um, so I'm going to kick it back over to, to you, Dr. Blevins, for, for any comments on, on kind of those uh, initial, additional changes that we see around that time frame. Well, I think the Endocrine Society probably had it right in 2008. Uh, 2009, uh, the ACE recommendations made sense at the time, but today they don't. And I think that the Endocrine Society recommendations are the ones that hold the most true. Uh, those studies in 2014 that you referenced, I think that they showed roughly 9% on average of patients had a, a cortisol greater than five after one milligram dexamethasone the night before. And that would sort of be in keeping with the ACE guidelines. Uh, but they also looked at, uh, and I think it was 30 to 40% from most of those studies of patients had an abnormal dex suppression uh, if you used a level of 1.8. Uh, so there's a big gap there. And, and what that means to me is that the, still in 2014, we're finding their number of people that have autonomous cortisol secretion, pathologic cortisol secretion due to a disease state who might not potentially be treated. Uh, and I think the subsequent studies have helped us really fine tune whether that group of patients need to be treated at all. Well, you know, we see relatively quickly from there uh, in 2016, and, and there were more publications that came out other than the, the three that, that we specifically referenced. But, but uh, uh, you know, shortly after some of these publications hit the literature, the European uh, Society, Endocrine Society, did update their guidelines for incidentaloma screening in 2016. And, and you know, in light of you know, this greater understanding of the risk associated with kind of fitting into this category of, of even lower documented levels of, of autonomous cortisol, that DST above 1.8, they lowered their cutoff from five to 1.8 micrograms per deciliter. And I think even more importantly, uh, recommended that clinicians not interpret these biochemical tests as black and white, yes, no, normal, abnormal, but really look at them on a continuum um, and, and look at the totality of the various biochemical results that come back in combination with the clinical presentation, you know, what is, what is this patient's history? What comorbidities do they have that could be attributed to cortisol? Um, how are they responding to, to traditional therapies? You know, taking a broader view of this patient picture when making an individualized uh, diagnostic and treatment approach. And um, it took a, a little bit longer 
for the U.S. to kind of formally endorse those guidelines. But in 2019, uh, a panel of, of U.S.-based experts in an ACE clinical review uh, did kind of endorse those 2016 European guidelines. These weren't formal, formal guidelines, but they did provide updated guidance uh, to U.S.-based clinicians when evaluating these adrenal incidentalomas to use that lower cutoff. And uh, essentially, they suggest that uh, just like those 2009 guidelines, if that post-DST cortisol is above five, you can be pretty certain that this patient has pathologic hypercortisolism. If it's in that 1.8 to 5 range, you know, look at some additional findings like, you know, ACTH levels, are they low or suppressed? DHEA sulfate levels, are they low or suppressed? You know, are there abnormalities in, in the urinary free cortisol or late night salivary cortisols? But again, also taking into account, what is this patient's clinical presentation? What comorbidities are they presenting with that could be attributed to cortisol? Uh, what, what constellation of comorbidities are, are, are there that could be attributed to cortisol? And what they stressed numerous times in that 2019 publication is make an individualized patient choice. Uh, you know, I think it's fair to say with the data we have right now, there is no perfect, here's the cutoff, here's this, here's that, here's your diagnosis. It's, you know, let's get the, the biochemical evidence. Let's look at the clinical presentation. And I, I've heard, um, I've heard you use this term before, Dr. Blevins, the gestalt kind of over, overarching picture of, it. does it look like this patient, is there reasonable evidence that this patient may have, uh, you know, hypercortisolism that's driving these issues that are, these other medical issues that they're, they're experiencing, and then, you know, make that individualized decision as to, should I make this diagnosis? And then, you know, should I move towards intervention? And, and if so, what might that intervention be? Um, but I'll, I'll kick that back over to you to, to kind of get your thoughts on, on those uh, kind of updates that occurred in that 2016 to 2019 timeframe. Yeah, and, you know, I firmly believe in that gestalt. Uh, and the problem with cutoffs is that they define cutoffs for a population of people who have disease or don't have the disease. And one of the things that I have learned uh, over my 30 plus years of doing pituitary medicine is that we all do have our own individual set points for hormone secretion. We're all going to have our own little normal ranges that are gonna be within the normal range of the assay for the population. But uh, for example, if your cortisol is supposed to be 20 and you're at 40, even though that's still normal, that's double than what you should be. Or maybe the reverse is true. Maybe you should be 40 and you're at 20 and you're too low. Uh, so I think these concepts are important and that we get into trouble with these cutoffs if they're not stringent enough and that that's where we're gonna miss people and missing people has consequences as we're gonna discuss next. Uh, so I'm, I was excited to see that uh, there was this evolution in the uh, sort of understanding of where cutoff should be to try to make sure the sensitivity was there to find everyone with the disease process. On the other hand, the consequences that uh, that changes the specificity. It means that we're gonna have false positive tests so that we have to work through that as well. So while we're improving our ability to diagnose patients, we're also uh, having normal people with abnormal test results. And that requires a bit of work and understanding as well. And uh, frankly, one of the difficult things that I've encountered as a result of that is it's difficult to convince people that they don't have Cushing's when they think they do because they had a positive screening test. Uh, so not, that, that's the new difficulty that arises before the difficulty was missing people. Now it's, it's 
equally difficult to try to convince people they don't have a disease that they think they have. Uh, so uh, every, every time you turn over a stone, you find something interesting uh, and uh, one problem leads to another, or one solution needs to, leads to new problems. And I think that's just the way life is in, in all arenas. Yeah, I think it's the fi finding that appropriate balance is the, is the hard part, right? So one of the things that I've heard you both say is the fact that many people with hypercorticillism don't have the classic features of Cushing's. So why does that matter? Can we just not wait till they get the classic symptoms and signs? Or is there a reason to intervene sooner rather than later? I, I think that's a, a really good question. Uh, and, and it leads us perfectly into kind of this, this next publication that I think is, is very relevant as far as, again, the, the timeline and, and how our understanding of, of this disease has grown. And that was this very large meta-analysis published in 2019, um, Dr. Alassane and, and et al. And um, you know, this was 32 studies that were grouped together. And the three studies we mentioned earlier by Drs. De Bono, Morelli, and Di Dalmazzi were part of this meta-analysis. And obviously, take any meta-analysis with a grain of salt. But um, what, what was interesting here is you have over four, you have data from over four thousand patients, and they ran several sub-analyses. And um, in, in in my you know humble opinion, I, I think what it helped to do is clarify what what does happen specifically to these patients with adrenal adenomas over time versus versus what doesn't. Um, if that makes sense, maybe it will in a second. Um, and, and that's, you know, again, all of these studies that were, were combined or, or analyzed in this meta-analysis were specifically looking at patients with these incidentally discovered adrenal adenomas who did not present with those classic physical features described by Dr. Harvey Cushing. And to, to get to, the, to your question, you know, why is it important to find this sooner? Well, if you were to take a half a step back, if you were to take a patient with pituitary disease or ectopic disease or, or some rarer form of adrenal disease like you know, bilateral macronodular hyperplasia or adrenal cortical carcinoma, and you were to screen them today and you know, their labs were you know, normal, border not, borderline normal, and you were to screen them in six months or 12 months from now, you'd see probably a significant uptick in, in, in cortisol. Um, if you took that same patient and watched them over the course of months or a year or so, you'd probably start to see some of these phenotypic features develop. But when you looked at, when, when this publication looked at these patients with adrenal adenomas who did not have those physical features, even over the course of three, four, five years of follow-up, they didn't, only six patients developed those features out of over 2000 in that particular sub-analysis. So, so those physical features tend not to develop in this particular subset of patients. And that's a really important thing to, to understand because as a clinician, if that's something that someone's waiting to see to kind of finalize the diagnosis, it's important to recognize that that may never happen. Or if that's the thing that someone's waiting to see to even screen a patient in the first place, it's important to recognize that that may, may never happen. Um, the other thing that didn't really evolve drastically over, over the, the follow-up period was the overall level of cortisol output. It, th these patients did not see dramatic increases in cortisol over the course of follow-up. So again, if, if we're waiting to see these more gross elevations in cortisol before finalizing a diagnosis or considering if intervention is appropriate, that may never happen in this particular patient group. But what did get worse 
his patients were more likely if they had evidence of cortisol secretion, which was defined differently in each study. So again, you, you can't take anything too black and white, but overall um, patients were more likely to have diabetes, more likely to develop diabetes, have worsening diabetes and have weight gain over time. Uh, they were more than twice as likely to have new cardiovascular events over the course of follow-up. So, you know, similar to what was, or, or in line with what was recommended in the European guidelines in this ACE clinical review was, was looking at the clinical picture. It, it, what, what, what we're starting to understand about these patients, again, specifically with adrenal adenomas that are secreting cortisol is they just seem to present and progress differently. Um, the, they may never develop those classic features, uh, and they may never develop gross elevations in cortisol, but their comorbidities develop and those comorbidities get worse and their risk of cardiovascular events increases. And, and those are the things that may help guide whether or not those, you know, <clears throat> levels of cortisol dysregulation that are showing up in the biochemical testing are actually causing problems or, you know, warranting a diagnosis or treatment. Um, and, and I think, again, recognizing that that, that etiology is just seems to be different than, than others is, is what helps kind of create that urgency for, for hopefully screening more broadly and, um, you know, taking action, uh, hopefully quicker. And again, uh, that's, uh, I'd love to kick it over to Dr. Blevins to get his uh, additional perspective on that. So it's clear that some of these patients with mild elevations in cortisol uh, or even autonomous cortisol secretion that aren't really elevated, but just more cortisol secreted throughout the 24-hour period do have consequences of their disease. And as we often do in medicine, we, we see the end result of something and then we start tracing backwards. So we know, for example, that a certain proportion of people with uncontrolled diabetes mellitus, maybe 3%, type two diabetes mellitus uncontrolled have Cushing's or 5% of people with newly diagnosed type two diabetes mellitus have Cushing's if you evaluate them. Uh, people who present with osteoporosis or fragility fractures in early age, if you screen them, you find that some of them have Cushing's. Hypertension, same thing. Uh, and it helps us understand the disease process better and that not everyone presents with the classic features as described by many G and, and several subsequent papers. Uh, so the, it behooves us to look for Cushing's and to start screening high risk populations of patients who have uh, these uh, illnesses that could potentially be related to cortisol excess to find the number of cases. And, and I think the uh, next paper that you'll discuss illustrates that point in fact. Yeah, and, and this was um, you know takes us all the way to almost the present day. This publication out of, of Italy actually that was just published in January of, of this year, 2021, uh, by Dr. Giovanelli and colleagues. And uh, this was interesting because it's it's a it was a case analysis and a literature review. So the authors identified 49 published cases where patients were definitively diagnosed with Cushing syndrome with hypercortisolism but who did not initially present with any of the physical features described by Dr. Cushing. Uh, so they didn't have those classic features. They, and, and these patients were, were termed hidden hypercortisolism patients by the authors. And of those 49 patients, uh, as, as uh, Dr. Blevins mentioned, their presenting features were bone disease, diabetes, hypertension, or a combination of, of those comorbidities. And whereas when we 
specifically screen patients who do present with those features, you tend to see that 70 to 80% of them have pituitary disease and you know, 10, 20% of them have ectopic or adrenal disease. In this set of cases, uh, only 10 of the 49 patients had pituitary disease. Only three of the patients had ectopic disease. And the other 36 patients, so 73% of these patients had adrenal disease. So um, flipped from the kind of normal prevalence or epidemiology uh, data that, that we've seen in the past. And the authors then did a literature review looking at, okay, so of these patients with hidden hypercortisolism, they were presenting with things like diabetes, hypertension, and bone disease. Well, what does the data look like when screening patients specifically, let's say with diabetes, how many of them have hypercortisolism? And, you know, as, as Dr. Blevins mentioned, one particular analysis looking at newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes patients performed in Denmark, um, when using up-to-date and, and accepted tests like the one milligram dexamethasone suppression test and currently recognized cutoffs like 1.8, uh, they actually identified 5% of these patients that they analyzed had hypercortisolism. And that's with through, through multiple lines of, of biochemical evidence. And uh, another, another study that looked at uh, may possibly a more enriched population because they were being treated for their diabetes at a tertiary center, found 8.6% of those patients had hypercortisolism. So, um, you know, we're, we're, and most of these patients found in these studies having adrenal adenomas driving their disease. So, um, you know, again, as we've understood that particular etiology of the disease a little bit better and, and therefore recognize that, that probably a broader set of patients may warrant screening, uh, as I guess we, we start to triangulate what these patients, how they may present and, and what populations may warrant that screening, um, a, a relatively significant proportion of those patients appear to have uh, hypercortisolism driving the, their, their conditions. And, you know, one kind of additional note that I think makes this condition even more complicated is that, you know, those patients with phenotypic features still exist too, and, and the, the kind of data around the prevalence of those patients and the ideology breakdown of those patients is still probably what we've always thought it to be. That's a, a, a relatively rare patient, and it's probably mostly from pituitary disease. Uh, and those patients are being treated by, you know, in tertiary centers that specialize in that condition. And then these, these other patients are probably initially, at least, uh, and for the most part, being seen by a different set of clinicians um, who are looking for and treating on a day-to-day -day basis, a different set of, of, of comorbidities. So, you know, we also have this, this kind of uh, difficult uh, situation where there's, you know, all these patients exist and we're learning more about them in, in different places, um, but it's hard to aggregate all this information and kind of uh, download it, if you will, to, to, to all the relevant parties, which, which makes it even more confusing to, to figure out exactly, you know, what data is meaningful to whom and, and, how, and what to do with it. And I guess that's, that's the part of the journey we're in now is figuring out what, what the next steps are to, to help ensure that more patients get screened sooner, identified quicker, and, and have an opportunity to be considered if appropriate for, for intervention. I'm reminded by a study out of the Harvard uh, Vanguard Medical Group that evaluated whether when an adrenal adenoma is found incidentally on CT, uh, if a radiologist includes that diagnostic testing should be performed, uh, has any impact on the subsequent outcome. And if the 
radiologists did not include that language on the report. Only about a quarter of patients underwent testing, whereas it was closer to 65% or thereabouts. I don't remember the exact number if the radiologist had suggested further investigation. If a patient was referred to an endocrinologist, about three quarters of patients actually underwent testing. That should really get up to about 100%. I think everyone with an adrenal adenoma should be evaluated to determine if they have hypercortisolism. And to your point about uh, uh, the identifying the patients at risk who probably have adrenal adenomas and don't know it, I think that a lot of people are out there languishing and awaiting uh, an astute clinician to understand this new data and make the diagnosis. And it behooves us who are educators to try to get the word out, so to speak, to change physician attitudes and behaviors towards testing uh, to identify these uh, patients who have yet to be diagnosed, but definitely need to be treated disease. Is this typically a primary care physician that what's, what's the point of, of suspicion? Where, do, where does that happen? Where I somebody suspects something? Most of the patients who have these disorders are managed by primary care physicians, internists, family practitioners, what have you. Um, you know, they're, they're treated for diabetes or hypertension or polycystic ovary syndrome, metabolic syndrome, uh, maybe osteoporosis or hyperlipidemia uh, or a combination of all of these things. And uh, the, these patients, again, don't have the full clinical uh, spectrum of classic hypercortisolism, so they're not recognized. And to be honest, so many people are treated with high-dose steroids for one problem or another, topical skin diseases, asthma, rheumatologic conditions. And these primary physicians have offices full of patients who look Cushingoid. And even when they have a classic Cushingoid patient coming in with pituitary adenoma or whatever, they don't recognize it. Uh, and there's, for some reason, the bell doesn't go off that says, I look Cushingoid, but I'm not taking steroids. So evaluate me and diagnose my Cushings. So there's a huge gap in diagnosis there uh, that uh, the people with classic disease aren't being recognized soon enough. And I think we have a lot of work, a steep, a steep hill to climb to try to get those patients who have hypertension and diabetes and osteoporosis to diagnosis sooner rather than later. So we have to sort of revolutionize our education, not only in the level of the medical schools, but also residency and uh, through campaigns that are involved um, in educating physicians uh, after they have be become practicing physicians. And, and that's where uh, Corset Therapeutics and their efforts to educate physicians about diseases, not just drugs, uh, and our efforts at Pituitary World News combine, I think, to, to heighten awareness we just need to make sure our message is actually received and heard. So it is evident that this knowledge of the last 20 years and more dramatically the last 10 years have, has had a real impact and brings a whole new set of challenges to suspect and recognize uh, these conditions earlier. You know, we have a situation here where uh, even 20 years ago, we thought that 80% of Cushing's was ACTH dependent uh, related to pituitary disease. And the other 20%, 10% was ectopic and 10% was adrenal disease. And with these studies over the past decade, I think we're recognizing one, that a lot of people are not diagnosed as of yet. And two, most of them probably have adrenal disease. So the whole landscape of the epidemiology of Cushing's 
has changed, and we don't know the real numbers yet. Uh, probably a significantly greater proportion of people have adrenal disorders, and a lesser proportion have uh, ectopic ACTH and pituitary disorders. So, you know, I think Dr. Blevins, you make a really important point, um, and. I, it's, I think it's going to be a difficult thing, or I guess maybe that's not the, the best way to frame it. It's going to be interesting to see, I guess, how it evolves over over the next, you know, five to ten years, um, as far as this recognition of, of uh, you know, ideologies and how they actually break down. And and I, I mentioned it earlier, and I think part of the the difficulty and the disconnect is is just that, um, you know, these different types of patients are being managed in very different. Uh, practice settings. And if, uh, if I'm a practicing community endocrinologist and I'm, I'm treating, you know, lots of, of, of diabetes and bone disease and thyroid disease, and, and I'm, I'm very busy keeping up with, with my practice to be vigilant, to look for something like hypercortisolism isn't, isn't necessarily an easy thing to do. Um, but if I start to, uh, think, that this is something I want to uh, maybe approach, or I'm starting to get exposed to some of this data, and it's it's changing my perspective. I may then go to a regional or a national, let's say, ACER or endocrine endo conference, and if I go to a a talk on Cushing syndrome. I'm probably not going to hear about that patient that I'm thinking about in my practice because the person on the podium is is probably someone who specializes more in classic Cushing's and, and the patient that they're seeing is, is, is more likely a patient that has features and is more likely to have pituitary disease or topic disease. And the testing that that individual is doing is going to be different because it's going to be relevant for that patient group in that setting. And it may be contrary to some of the things I was starting to think about these patients I'm seeing, or maybe these adrenal adenoma patients. And I think there sometimes causes a confusion as to what what's right uh, or what I should do as a clinician. Um, and I, I, I say, I, I, I do want to make it clear that I am not a physician. <laughs> um, so I, I, I guess I say I and we more as a collective, you know, people interested in this topic. Um, and I think sometimes that can be, can be difficult because, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm a, an expert in, or if I'm working at a, a tertiary center or a pituitary center, and that's the type of patient I'm seeing, and I'm speaking about my experience, it's gonna be such a very different experience than what the community endocrinologist might be seeing and the, the patient type that they're potentially seeing. And, you know, I think bridging that gap is, is, is proving sometimes difficult inadvertently. So, uh, just because of, uh, the, the context in which, the individual clinicians are seeing the, the different types of patients that they're seeing. And, you know, we, we continue to see talks that separate Cushing syndrome from subclinical Cushing syndrome or mild hypercortisolism. And, you know, I guess a question uh, for you is, you know, what do we need to do or, or, or is it even, you know, possible to, to, to start just looking at this as one broader spectrum of hypercortisolism, similar to how, you know, hyperaldosteronism is currently viewed versus being called con syndrome or these different sub, you know, categories. It's primary aldosteronism. It's, it's either a problem it needs to be treated or it's not. Um, I think when that starts to happen, we may start to see things move faster for these patients. Um, but I, I, that's something I'd really like to get your thoughts on. Change is always difficult. You know, physicians are in practice. They, they don't have time to keep up with the literature. They're not motivated to, to test patients who might have mild forms of disease. And there, there, there used to be a concept that uh, when I was in my training that if, if, you, 
if you give it a tincture of time, a disease will present and show itself to you, rear its ugly head, so to speak. I think we need to get them before that point. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, based on some of this data coming out in the last five years, that it's important to get to the early diagnosis and treatment. And I think to change the mindset of the physician is going to require grassroots efforts. It's going to require educators at the level of medical schools and residencies and national meetings to tell this story about how this disease process has evolved and our understanding has led to the fact that there are patients with uh, different, I don't want to say subclinical because I don't like that term. I don't want to say milder because these things are severe uh, and that they lead to cardiovascular mortality, but different expressions of the same disease process. And one of the things that I've recognized and learned is that probably those people who get the classic forms of Cushing syndrome have the genetic complex or the, the, the genotype that leads to metabolic syndrome. Well, not everyone has metabolic syndrome or will ever develop it. So they're going to present with Cushing's in a different way. And when we can start to teach that rather than sort of the classic features of Cushing's that we used to refer to as the doorway diagnosis and that you diagnose it when you walk into the room, I think we can make a difference. Uh, physicians need to learn to understand the subtle manifestations of a disease process or the I don't like the term hidden hypercortisolism. I like the term previously unrecognized hypercortisolism, but to, to learn to recognize it and uh, be able to take the time and prioritize the testing to enable the diagnosis and the treatment to make a positive outcome in a patient's life. So I think it's grassroots. Um, it's, it's different. I mean, sure we can empower some patient groups to do this, but most of the patient groups are people who've already been diagnosed. Uh, and, uh, you know, unless we can get uh, groups of patients with diabetes and hypertension and osteoporosis to, to go into the physician's office and say, I'd like to be tested for this disorder, uh, I think that we're going to get more. I mean, that would be tremendous to be able to see that, but that's probably not going to happen. I think we're going to get more uh, positive uh, effect by educating physicians at national and society meetings, et cetera, journal articles. Uh, flyers, perhaps, uh, to try to get the word out. And hopefully more and more new data, too, to, to, to really help yeah, triangulate better who, who really should be screening and who could benefit from screening. Yeah. I think this timeline does really illustrate the fact that uh, or the impact that a decade can have uh, on our understanding of, uh, of, the, of a disease process and how that uh, alters our perception of what's going on and how we need to adjust and adapt to this information uh, to carry forward in the practice of medicine. One of the terms of thinking about how to get this information to people, this, this important information to the person that can make a decision uh, is, you know, the, the, the viewing decisions from a strategic communication standpoint and saying to with what message do you get to what segment of the person that needs to make a decision and what's the most important ac action which is the physician need to suspect, suspect it, or the patient has to be informed enough to say, I read about this, can you put it on your, put it on your radar? And that is a, a, you know, this is a communications issue mm -hmm. uh, because um, you know, there's so much going to all, all these, these communication segments that you have to be very, um, I think, strategic on what you choose and how you choose to communicate and what, um, 
at what levels and with what uh, tools. Uh, you bring up an important point about communication. And one way that we communicate as uh, physicians and professionals is through the medical literature. We conduct a study involving patient groups and uh, we publish our results for others to review. Uh, there is just a plethora of information out there and it's impossible for a physician, uh, much less a patient to organize and manage it all. Uh, the uh, meta-analysis that was mentioned earlier by El Hassan's a, a tremendous example of that very fact. They had 34 studies or thereabouts, 32 or 34 studies, and uh, they started with 1,111 articles. And they tried to pick articles that they thought would give them the information they needed. They ended up with uh, the 30 plus studies and over 4,000 patients. But the remainder of those studies they deemed as not uh, providing or yielding the information or studies not done appropriately to get the information that they wanted to get the answers to, to the questions that they had posed. And when you think about that, what's a physician in a busy practice supposed to do when an article comes out about hypercortisolism or Cushing's or adrenalinomas? What's a patient to do who has far less understanding of relevance? So this is the information age and there's almost, almost too much bandwidth. And mm -hmm. that's where meta-analyses, even though Mike mentioned you take them with a grain of salt, this is probably the best meta-analysis I've ever seen. Uh, the most appropriately conducted and the most useful and it answered questions that you can't get through other studies. You have to put this together and get that information from a large body of information, but they had to prune over 99% of it away or thereabouts uh, just to get uh, to what they truly needed to have uh, to understand the questions posed. Yeah, so that's we have to We have to figure out a way to sort of mine the data and present it uh, in a uh, fashion to where physicians can use it to advance their practice. And the challenge in the communication world is always to distill information to its most important point. So, so it sticks, you know, this is a basic, you know, marketing communication type thing. You, 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 you find that who's going to receive the information and try to give it to them in a way that they're going to pay attention to it. Um, uh, so, you know, perhaps there is a, a very good and important role for, for strategic communication here to really think about who are the target markets? Who are the who are the who's the audience? And how do you need to reach that audience most effectively? Mm. And with what message? You no. Know? Yeah, I think it's such an important point. And and uh, you know, Dr. Blevins, the the point of of how many studies had to be eliminated to get to those thirty two that really you know were were the most. Um, that's right. Helpful is not the best word, but it's the word coming to me right now. Uh, relevant, yeah. relevance and it, yeah, um, it, it. I think that just shows how difficult it is to to keep keep on top of this. And and I think the other thing that's difficult about this disease state, like any you know more rare condition, it's not like you can do a four. It's not like you can do a four thousand patient diabetes study where you can really do this huge prospective analysis and, and learn a lot in in one in one big push. 
this is this is a story that's kind of told in aggregate, right? It's it's the accumulation of all of these data points that are consistently telling this broader story um, that are that are kind of reinforcing each other um, and and can further illuminating uh, the bigger picture. Um, that that's what's been happening over the last, like you said, this last decade where so much has come out. But there isn't there isn't that one or two big studies that we can mine for so much. Uh, and it does require things like well, well done meta-analyses to start pulling some of these points together. And, and that was why I particularly liked that study uh, from 2019, the LSN meta-analysis, because it really did, uh, they did a really good job of taking some very relevant data and, and pulling it together in a way where you could step back and see the bigger picture of you know, this particular ideology of the disease and, and again, how it's presenting and progressing and it's just different than the others. And it, it helps to you know, uh, really demonstrate some of the implications of, of you know, hey, if this, if this patient group exists and we recognize that it exists and we recognize that it looks different and it's not gonna ever look the way we were maybe trained to look for a Cushing's patient, then where are we going to look? <laughs> and then that opens the door to the questions that that Giovanelli paper answer of, well, if you screen patients that have diabetes, that have these particular comorbidities, this is the percentage of patients you may find. Um, now, I think there still needs to be more work done to, to really further triangulate that, but it, it certainly begs the question of, you know, could we do more to help find these patients sooner? Well, once again, Jorge, it's a pleasure to podcast with you. And thank you, Mike, so much for joining us today. It's been very informative. We appreciate your insights and uh, your abilities to communicate effectively. And I'm sure that our listeners have uh, learned a great deal today. And hopefully we can all start working together to make that positive difference to lead to uh, better diagnosis and improved treatments for this uh, uh, disorder, Cushing's syndrome and disease. I started to call it rare, but I don't want to do that any longer because I think it's clear that it's not as rare as it was once believed to be. So thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Dr. Blevins. And thank you, JD. Again, it was uh, it really was an honor to be invited to have this conversation with you. I always enjoy our conversations and, and uh, I, I always learn a lot as well. So I, I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much, Mike and Dr. Blevins. This has been a great, great chat. So we're looking forward to many more of these. You have been listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by contributors and listeners like you. To find out more, go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on Get Involved. And now you can download our podcast on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora. Thank you for listening. Thank you.